Hello, new listeners. This is the host, Anthony, here, and I just wanted to come back and add this to the beginning of the first episode to let you guys know that this episode was the very first time that I had ever recorded a podcast. So I was still learning what to do, and I have gotten much better in the six months since I released this episode. So if you find that you don't really enjoy this episode, maybe try starting with a later episode, maybe one of the newer ones, to see if maybe you will in fact enjoy it. Because I have gotten much better at both researching and talking in a way that makes sense and is more fluid. So, if you want to go ahead and continue listening to this, that's totally fine. But just remember that if you do hate it, just go ahead and try and listen to one of the later episodes. You might find you enjoy it much more. I appreciate you guys. Always check your smoke detector batteries. Hello, and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. This week, we're going to cover a disaster that is near and dear to my heart. As near and dear as a disaster can be, I guess. Mrs. O'Leary's Cow and the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. To start with... And I'm going to ruin some of your lives with this one, and kind of my own, because I really love interesting causes of fires. Mrs. O'Leary's cow probably didn't start this fire, but we'll get into that later. I guess to start, we should describe what Chicago was like in the years leading up to the fire. There's really only one word to describe it. Busy. Chicago was a city separating the west from the east. It was a massive metropolis sitting on basically the end of Lake Michigan, making it the end of water shipment access to the Midwest, and also sitting right along the route of some of the most important rail lines in the United States. All this is to say, Chicago was growing, and it was growing insanely fast. The city had been founded in 1833 by a group of around 200 people, and by 1870, the year before the fire, it had grown to a population of 300,000. Because the city had grown so quickly, that meant that anything in the city was essentially brand new and had been built as quickly as possible. The one material in the area of the upper Midwest that was in great supply and that could be rapidly manufactured and built was wood. The entire city was essentially made of wood. They had wooden roads, wooden sidewalks, and tens upon tens of thousands of completely wooden buildings Or, if they weren't made of wood, they were trimmed with wood. As we've already discussed, thanks to the location near the super-dense forests around the Great Lakes, Chicago became one of the biggest markets for lumber. Combined with the massive amounts of transportation available to move that lumber, Chicago had massive stockpiles of lumber sitting in lumber yards around the city. All of this is to say, Chicago was essentially a pile of wood soaked in gasoline covered with sawdust, waiting for someone to look at it wrong so it could burn down. It's really hard to describe the massive amount of wood that was in Chicago on the day the fire started in 1871. It was essentially the major industry in Chicago. The entire river, Chicago River, through the middle of town was just full of lumber yards up and down the riverbank. The buildings were made of wood. The streets were made of wood. The sidewalks were made of wood. 
they were using the wood that was available to them. They were using the building materials that were available to them. And they were using them as quickly as they could. So not only was it super flammable and readily available, they had begun using a construction process known as balloon framing. Now, balloon framing was an older type of wooden construction um, that is different to how houses are built now. Houses built now, the floor goes all the way to the exterior, so the floor joist or the, the the actual floor goes all the way to the exterior wall, so there's a break between floors. So between your first floor and your second floor, that ceiling for your first floor goes all the way to the exterior wall, so there's not a gap in between behind the drywall and between the exterior of the wall. In balloon framing, they didn't have that break. It was just straight up all the way to the top of the roof. So if you had a fire in, say, your first floor and you had a third floor, if that fire broke in through that wall, it could very easily climb up that balloon framing all the way to the third floor, and now you have a fire on your first floor, and you have a separate, unconnected fire on your third floor. And you don't have to be a fire investigator or a firefighter to understand that that's a big problem, and that can lead to fire spread rapidly throughout your building. The other thing is, buildings back then had what are called pipe chases. Pipe chases work similar to balloon framing. Say you have a water line that runs from, say, your third floor into your basement for a drain pipe. You get a fire outside that drain pipe in the basement, and it travels all the way up to your third floor through that pipe chase. Balloon-framed buildings were extremely common in Chicago in 1871. A, because you only had to cut one length of stud the entire length of the house. So it made putting them up insanely easy because you literally only had to make one wall and you just push it up and you have a whole wall made. You can just attach the floor joists to that already made wall, throw up three more walls, you've got a two-story, three-story house in no time at all, essentially. The other thing is, with how fast Chicago was settled and was built, things were close. There wasn't these giant streets like there are now in a lot of the Midwestern cities. They were close together, everything was wood, and it allowed for rapid, rapid fire spread. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 was the biggest fire that Chicago had, but it was by far not the only fire Chicago had. There were several fires throughout the years where it took up entire city blocks and burned entire city blocks to the ground. And firefighters would spend days trying to put these out just because of the sheer amount of houses and buildings that had been built that were completely made of wood and how easy it was to spread that fire from house to house by how close everything was. All this is to say that Chicago was basically flipping a giant middle finger to the fire gods just by merely existing in the state that it currently was. There was no way that Chicago was going to get out of this state without having some kind of ginormous fire. It was just too volatile, and if somebody did the smallest thing wrong, it was going to set something off. You were going to get... There was no way there wasn't going to be the right circumstances to set off a giant fire like the Great Chicago Fire. And that's not all. 
as some of you may know, Chicago is known as the Windy City. And as some of you may have learned from wildfires this year or years before, one of the big drivers in fires that have leapt out of their original area is wind. And there is a lot of wind in Chicago, and it did not help in this situation. And then it gets worse. The summer of 1871 was extra special. Only about an inch of rain had fallen in and around Chicago since the 4th of July, and the fire happened on October 8th of 1871. So basically about three months had passed, and it had barely rained at all. And you don't have to be an expert in fire to know that a lack of water leads to very dry material, which leads to a lot of fire, and a lot of fire spreading really, really fast. It wasn't a matter of if Chicago would burn. It was a matter of when Chicago would burn. The city had been built so haphazardly and almost entirely of wood that it's almost a miracle that it didn't ignite sooner than it did. On October 8th, it was a very windy day. And unbeknownst to most citizens of Chicago at the time, there had been at least three other major fires throughout the Midwest that day. The fire that became known as the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 started around 8.30 p.m. in or around a barn located in the area of 137 Decoven Street in a neighborhood in the southwest corner of Chicago. The first building to catch fire was a shed on the O'Leary Farm, and it's very possible it could have been contained to just that and the surrounding area. But then, essentially everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The night before, a large fire had occurred in a nearby neighborhood. This had taken the entire fire brigade and every horse-drawn fire engine in the city to fight it. Many firefighters hadn't returned to their homes until just a few hours before this new fire broke out. Several engines had also been damaged and could not be used. So the Chicago Fire Department was already short on manpower and equipment. Having been a firefighter, fighting a house fire takes a lot out of you. It's exhausting work. It's hot, it's humid, and it's basically everything you would think fighting a fire would be. So, having to fight a multi-block fire, not getting home until noon in some situations, after having spent the entire night trying to put out a fire, and then getting called to another massive fire, essentially eight hours later, I can't even imagine how tired and exhausting that would be. So... That was a major, major problem for the Chicago Fire Department in responding to this. But then it got worse. A shopkeeper in the area of DeCoven Street had tried to pull f alarms from two different alarm boxes, but both were down due to damage from the fire the night before. So, now they're down manpower, equipment, and they have a response time that is essentially delayed because they can't get the alarm in in time. And I know what you're thinking. That has to be the end of it. It literally can't get worse than broken equipment, exhausted firefighters, and a super delayed alarm. Oh, but it can. Due to the haze from the previous night's fire, which hadn't cleared yet, the watchman, Matthias Schaefer, sent fire companies to a location that was a mile away from where the fire actually was. So, now they're down manpower. They have broken equipment. They've lost time due to the alarms not working properly, and now they're a mile away from where the fire 
is already pretty much rocking and rolling on its own. The first arriving company was called the Little Giant Company. They were half-manned and essentially ineffective, having been out all night fighting the previous night's multi-block fire. The second arriving company was Engine Company Number 5. They had worked 15 hours straight on the previous day's fire and were exhausted, but being firefighters, they got to work anyway. Well, they would have gotten to work, but as soon as they hooked up to the hydrant, the engine broke down for over an hour. So they were without water for an hour and were, again, essentially ineffective. And then finally, the fire chief arrived and called out every single company in the city. But at that point, the blaze was out of control. Two furniture stores and a box-making store were on fire. And when you have a furniture store on fire, you have a problem. Furniture is obviously made of wood, especially in 1871. And as we've already discussed, and obviously most of you know, wood burns really well. But uh, cardboard boxes burn very, very well. And at that point, you're fighting a losing battle. And there's no amount of hoses in 1871 that are going to slow that down. And there's not many hoses in the year of 2020 that are going to slow that fire down. That's essentially hope that it doesn't spread past that. By that point, the fire had reached the western bank of the south branch of the Chicago River. Being fed by three buildings that are essentially giant tender boxes, there was essentially nothing that the Chicago Fire Department could have done faced with all the challenges that they were going into this fire. Once the fire reaches the river, your only hope is pray the fire doesn't hop the river and set up on the bridges nearby and spray and try and keep it from igniting the bridges as best as you possibly can. And so, of course, what immediately happens is the fire jumps the river. The steamer company called the Fred Lund set up for a defense of the Van Buren Street Bridge located approximately one mile northwest of the O'Leary's barn. Their plan was to fight and keep the fire from spreading across the bridge. They held their ground and fought valiantly until their clothes literally, and I mean literally, caught on fire and they were forced to flee. Around midnight, the fire had jumped the river and was essentially completely out of control. Fires were burning out of control in all different areas, and the Chicago Fire Department was trying to play catch-up and were doing a really poor job at it. Not that it was really any of their fault. Most of them had spent 15 to 16 hours the day before already fighting a fire, and winds were gusting, and it was essentially a giant tinderbox. There was just absolutely nothing that they could have done to prevent this. And after the fire had jumped the river, things kind of got weird in Chicago. Uh, About 2 a.m. on October 9th of 1871, the courthouse caught on fire with about 150 or so criminals in the holding cell awaiting trial. They waited there for a while as the courthouse burned around him before they decided to release all but a few criminals to flee the fire. Just let them out of the cells, let them run wild, get out of town as far away from the fire as they can. And I know what you're thinking. 
this is a disaster. There is absolutely no possible way this could get any worse than it already is. And I'm here to tell you that it absolutely can always get worse. And you know what? It sure did. At right around 6 a.m. on October 9, 1871, the waterworks for the city caught on fire. And then it failed. And thus, all firefighting efforts in the city ended. No water, no firefighting. That fire was unopposed from then on. At that point, there was no stopping this fire. It was spreading, and it was going to spread unchecked, and nothing anyone was going to do was going to stop it. It hopped the Chicago River a second time. I guess, technically, it didn't hop the Chicago River a second time. It caught the Chicago River on fire and traveled to the other side of it due to local factories dumping waste in the river that caught on fire. Everything in the city was essentially burning. The wind was creating fire whirls, allowing for embers to spread farther and farther along. At its height, the fire burned 3.3 square miles of the city. It consumed almost 18,000 structures and took the lives of 300 people. It caused $4.7 billion worth of damage in today's money. 100,000 people were rendered homeless due to this fire. Eventually, on the evening of October 9th, it began to rain. By that point, the fire had started to burn itself out anyway due to reaching an area with minimal structures to spread to on the north end of the city and Lake Michigan impeding any further travel east. It took several days for the debris to cool off enough to even survey the damage. The city was placed under martial law for two weeks to prevent mass looting and price gouging. There are several stories of survival that endured through the Great Chicago Fire, but the one that really stuck out to me is from police officer Richard Bellinger. He spent the entire time dousing his house with water and extinguishing any embers that fell nearby. And when he ran out of water, he broke into his stores of cider and was dumping cider on his house and any embers that fell nearby. His house survived the fire intact and is one of the only houses in the area northeast of the O'Leary's barn that actually survived the fire. And now on to the juicy parts. The origin of this fire isn't really in doubt. It definitely came from the vicinity of the O'Leary's barn. What is in question is the cause. It definitely was not Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Number one, no one milks cows that late in the evening. That's too late for the cows. Most people at that time were, it just didn't happen that way. And number two, Chicago Republican, a newspaper company, reporter Michael Ahern admitted he, or potentially others working for him, made up the story of the cow kicking over the lantern. This leaves a few options. These options are discarded smoking material in the barn, a lantern knocked over by a gambling party or milk thieves, spontaneous combustion, or errant embers. Discarded smoking material is a highly likely potential in this case. It's not a glamorous one, but it's highly likely. Smoking was common, and with the minimal amount of rain and high winds, 
that provides perfect conditions for a fire caused by carelessly discarded smoking materials. Spontaneous combustion can be ruled out in my mind. Hay needs to be wet and then stored inside for a significant amount of time for spontaneous combustion. Considering there had only been an inch of rain in Chicago since the 4th of July, it's highly unlikely that they stored any hay wet within the barn. And I think that can be ruled out entirely as not a competent ignition source. The gambling party, on the other hand, could be a potential ignition source as the O'Learys had connections to gambling in the city and one of the descendants of Mrs. O'Leary had significant connections to a very famous Chicago gangster, one Mr. Al Capone. The issues with the other potential causes is it's impossible to prove or disprove without witness testimony. The fact of the matter is, we will probably never know the true cause of the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. In the years after the fire, Chicago rebuilt rapidly, but it placed limits on the number of wooden structures that could be built. The Great Chicago Fire very well could have ended Chicago as a metropolitan city not long after it had actually been started, but it didn't. Chicago came back bigger and stronger. The first load of lumber to rebuild Chicago was delivered the very same day the last burning building from the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 was fully extinguished. One of the funnier stories that came out of this, the city of Chicago was looking for a place to build its fire academy in the mid-1950s. And of course, they chose the spot of the O'Leary Farm, and that is where the fire academy stands to this day. Every single firefighter in the city of Chicago trains and learns to fight fire in the very spot that the fire that almost destroyed the city of Chicago started. And that is a level of spite that I hope to be able to achieve one day. And I think it shows the enduring spirit of the city of Chicago. I hope you guys enjoyed listening about the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Um, next week, I plan on discussing another great disaster in the United States, the Great Molasses Flood of 1919 in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. And as always, remember to stay healthy, stay safe, and check your smoke detector batteries.